If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Wednesday afternoon. 403-974-8255 is our number. A lot more time for your calls. A lot more still to get to this afternoon. Of course, we will hear from Premier Jason Kenney coming up at 2.30 this afternoon. Uh, so keep it here. We'll have that live for you. Off the top in this hour, though, I wanted to get back to the conversation around uh, COVID testing. And we've talked a lot in recent months about the potential value of uh, having more rapid testing available. Right now, we, like other provinces, rely primarily on the PCR testing, uh, which is seen as the gold standard, the most uh, sensitive testing. But of course, you know, it, it involves uh, resources, it has to be sent off to a lab, and, you know, it takes some time to get a result. I, I think for the most part, certainly early on, Alberta was uh, a leader in, in testing capacity. But obviously, if we're going to re- continue to rely on PCR testing, there's, there's a limit to how much we can deploy that. Uh, conversely, though, Uh, There's the ability for rapid testing to be more widely deployed. And there certainly have been some encouraging advancements in in the development of rapid testing, better tests, more easily deployed tests, uh, and even tests that don't have to be sent off to a lab, point-of-care testing. So how can we target those resources? You know, certainly there's there's going to be, I think, a a gap that we're going to have to bridge, Uh, between now and widespread vaccination. And and even still, I think there's going to be an important role for testing to play. And we look at uh, getting certain industries back. um, We can look at at schools, universities, getting those kids back or keeping them back, uh, that there's a real role for testing to play. But why have we been so slow to adopt this? There's been a really cautious approach, I, I think, from regulators, which is maybe understandable at some level. But uh, as has often been said, let's not let perfect be the enemy of the good here. Uh, Nova Scotia is an interesting case study when it comes to making use of rapid tests. And, and maybe that's an example that we can not just emulate, but build off of. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about how rapid testing is being used in Nova Scotia and how maybe we can, more broadly speaking, across the country, step up our game in this respect. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Lisa Barrett, Assistant Professor at Dalhousie University, Division of Infectious Disease of the Department of Medicine, also the Department of Microbiology and Immunology, someone who was key in developing Nova Scotia's approach. Dr. Barrett, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Uh, when we use the term rapid testing, it, it actually refers to, um, I, I guess, sort of a variety of different kinds of testing. Some tests still do have to go off to a lab. Others are point-of-care tests. Uh, is it important to make these distinctions? Absolutely. So rapid tests are rapid because they take less time than some others. Uh, right. Rapid being, of course, a relative thing. 
Yes. So the ones we have access to currently in Canada that fall into that group, um, there's a rapid test that could go to a lab, and uh, it's done in four to six hours, still requires a nasopharyngeal swab, um, but still requires health resources, health human resources to process those tests, perhaps collect them, and to, uh, to send out the results. So that's part of your healthcare system. Then there are these other rapid tests many of which were meant, as you mentioned, to be point of care. So taken outside the core laboratory, taken around to different places. Uh, some of those require still a nasopharyngeal swab, the deep swab, as some people like to call it. Uh, others don't require quite as deep a sample, but they uh, can use a, an instrument that can be brought to a particular site uh, those are still a PCR-type test. Uh, there's, a, there's other versions as well. But the one we're using as a rapid and point-of-care test currently here in Nova Scotia is actually a rapid antigen test. So it's not PCR. It's rapid in that you get a result in 15 minutes. It does not require an on-site machine that needs maintenance or calibration or special attention. And we can uh, use a visual method to read the test. It does require a nasopharyngeal swab, uh, but we're pretty convinced out here that you don't need a medical professional to put a swab in a nose. And so that's what we're using at the moment. That's interesting. And so what, what's been the, the objective here? What, what were you hoping to achieve by deploying more of this? And, and what have you seen since you did so? Yeah, I think it's I think it's important to note that we started this idea of doing testing for people without symptoms with rapid tests in the context of having pretty low case numbers and not uncontrolled viral replication in the community. And we did that with the support and endorsement of our provincial public health group, our testing strategy group. Uh, our government, and then myself and um, Dr. Todd Hatchett, who heads up our lab, um, actually got out of the lab and was very keen to uh, try something different. And the thing we were trying to do that's a little different is not necessarily just to use this as a test of diagnosis, but of engagement. So get out into the community at a time when there's a pretty low case number and make sure that we're cleaning up or mopping up, if you will, finding people um, before they have symptoms who are at low risk of infection to make sure we know about low or no symptom infections. Number two, to engage the community by not using human health resources, <laughs> by mm -hmm. getting volunteers to do this, engage people in the idea of regular testing. And then number three, help build information and data so that our policymakers and decision makers knew exactly how much the real virus level in the community around the province was. So it's almost a surveillance approach at some level? Yeah, I mean, the F word has a very, you know, specific... Yeah meaning in terms of epidemiology and and you know this is not a perfect surveillance system by any stretch of the imagination i like to think of it as sort of surveillance but really concentrating on a low risk setting but also this is not just about a one-time thing and a diagnosis again it's about helping people get around as we have low case numbers to understanding that vaccines aren't going to fix this 
you still need to do distancing, hand washing, masking. But if you're going to head out to do some sort of activity, perhaps knowing you're negative for the night before you go to your restaurant with your small group of friends or uh, before you head to an event that has some other people, then you might want to get some testing done to decrease the chance that there's somebody around who may not know they're infected around you. So part of it is surveillance. That's the part I mentioned about unknown community virus. So it, it helps to bolster when people say we have four new cases today. Um, kind of nice to know that that's not just people with symptoms, that it's closer to getting a real sense of the total amount of virus around. So that's the surveillance part, but also engaging community and making routine testing a very destigmatized thing. These are tests that are obviously approved by, by Health Canada. And, and I know there's been some hesitation or reluctance, or maybe we've just been slow to uh, to approve and embrace this approach. How do you quantify, I guess? I mean, th- these are not quite as, mm. as sensitive, obviously, as PCR tests, but um, how do we quantify what's what's a good test? Yeah, that, I guess that, you know, there is no universal good test. Your right. test is good if you have a good question. Uh, if you just pitch forth any diagnostic test, um, in medicine and you don't know what your question is at the beginning, you're just fishing around for something, you won't use the right test at the right time. And so these tests, the particular one that we're using, may miss some real positives, maybe early in infection. Um, And sometimes there can be false positives. So the test looks to be positive, but you don't really have an infection when you go back and do the gold standard test after. Um, The the, the reason it's still a good test to use your terminology, despite those those caveats, which, by the way, are true of any test, even the gold standard, you can get false and positives and false negatives. Um, the good thing about using this test in the context of what we're doing is that our question was about positives in people who would never otherwise get tested. Yeah. So we're picking up something that even if you missed 80%, which we don't, even if you missed 80%, you're still getting some interval benefit. Uh, and number two, you're still getting people used to the idea of testing and what that means and what it doesn't mean. So we do provide education that this doesn't mean you're negative forever. It doesn't mean you could stop doing public health um, precautions. It doesn't mean you shouldn't get vaccinated. You still have to do all that good stuff uh, in addition to knowing you're negative for the day, but it does does give people a little bit of reassurance for those few hours. It's interesting, too, because, I mean, we, we want any test to be accurate. You don't want to tell people they have something that they don't. You also don't want sure. to give someone a clearance, and, and maybe they do have it. I mean, is, is it possible to to say that one is worse than the other? Is a false positive mm. worse than a false negative, or, or would it be the other way around? Or can you, can we make yeah. that judgment call? I, I So... I'm glad you asked the question because this sits in the back of everyone's mind. Uh, Mm. When you're doing a program like this, where you're going out, again, people want to concentrate on the test characteristics and use it and think about it like a screening program or, or a surveillance program. Again, not our sole purpose here, diagnostics. It's also about engagement. So that's good. Giving people some reassurance, what we've heard from folks is more so than that they were stressed out if they got a false positive or that they felt that a negative means that they're 
durably negative. And of course, if they were positive, then they might do something wrong. Those weren't the messages we were getting back from people. They really clearly understood that nothing changes. When they were positive, they were like, ooh, okay, better come on back, get my test. Um, there was Maybe it's the approach we took, but certainly mm-hmm. people were not panicked or unduly harmed by thinking they were positive for seven hours until they got their confirmatory negative or positive test back. Um, So I don't think there's a lot of harm in the way we're using it in this situation as of right now. Of course, that can always change, and I never want to say what I think people are going to feel about something. It's always great to ask. So, so far, we haven't seen unintended harm or behaviors that are more risky because of doing the testing, which is useful. Now, going forward, I mean, you know, Nova Scotia is in somewhat of a unique position, maybe an enviable position in a lot of ways. But what do you think other provinces can can take from this approach? And is this something maybe that we could start to use on a more targeted basis, even, you know, in certain communities or hospital, healthcare settings, certain industries? What, what do you think? Yep, I think there's lots of places we could use these well. Depends where you are in your pandemic, depends on your numbers, depends on your questions. But I still think there's all kinds of questions we can ask with these. Uh, We're taking them forward into as we start to have the epidemiology that makes it safer to open up a little bit. Um, We're going to use them and and hope to place them near places where hospitality industry is, Um, give people an opportunity to get a test right before they go for their four or five hours out. Everyone's negative at a table. That's helpful. Um, you can think about different settings. Um, I know that some folks in BC are using them in, in longer term care for serial testing, so repeated testing. Um, thinking about other places like schools. At times when the case number is low, I think that this is not a bad idea. So it really does depend where you are in the country, where you are in your uh, case numbers. Uh, but lots of, lots of possibilities here. But I hope, I hope. What people really want to do is help to start using these tests to normalize testing, recognizing that it's going to be eight or 10 months before routine testing, especially as we open up a bit. And I know Calgary and and, and Alberta um, have had some fairly liberal at times social situations. Um, Mm -hmm. Use this as a tool of engagement. We don't use up health resources. We use volunteers. Um, and when community owns these things, um, they're much more likely to get tested regularly. And I hope that's one of the key take-homes that people see as possible with this kind of point-of-care test. And I guess even once we, you know, we get later into this year, we have more widespread vaccination. That, that's not going to negate the need for, for testing, is it? Nope. <laughs> that's, sure. that's my new short answer on that one. Uh-uh. <laughs> Next. But seriously, (laughs) joking aside, absolutely not. We're still getting information and data around whether this vaccine is protected, meaning you could still be infected uh, and spreading to others, but at a low level, which you don't know about, which actually reinforces asymptomatic testing. Um, And we don't know if it's sterilizing immunity. Plus, you need a huge number of people in the population to be vaccinated before you can rely on that. So, no. Testing, make it part of your daily living, especially as places start to open up. Make it part of your routine to make a plan for some asymptomatic testing if it's available to you is my best advice. It's what I do and what many people are doing here in Nova Scotia increasingly. All right. We'll leave it there. Dr. Baird, thanks so much for the insight on all of this. Appreciate you making some time for us here today.
Yeah, great. Thanks for having me on, and uh, I hope things uh, are getting better and better out your way. Let's hope so. Fingers crossed. Uh, Dr. Barrett, thanks yeah. again. Take care. Okay, thanks. All Bye-bye. right. There's uh, Lisa Barrett, uh, Assistant Professor, Division of Infectious Diseases at uh, Dalhousie University, and uh, somebody who's been uh, key in developing this approach in Nova Scotia, which, you know, I guess when you're in that position where you get low levels of, of infection to begin with, you can get a little more creative or strategic in how you deploy these resources, but I think there's there's more we can take from this. And as a way of, of helping to get back to normalcy, you know, testing can play a key role in that. And so that's why it's frustrating, I think, that we've been so slow and so tentative. You know, and even the, the I think part of the argument has been that, well, if, you know, if we have more widespread testing, that maybe people are going to engage in more risky behavior, be less inclined to follow health guidelines, which is a pretty cynical view, I think. <laughs> Let's get these resources out there. By the way, and just to mention this, and it was... Um, there was a, a National Post article about this, and it includes uh, this footnote here. Uh, Montreal businessman Sandy White, who is co-founder of the advocacy group Rapid Test and Trace Canada, is hoping to push things further. He plans to submit a proposal next week to the Alberta government for a mass testing program in Banff, where he grew up and still owns two small inns. So the goal is to use rapid tests to screen 5 to 10% of the local population each day, and eventually tourists as well. His plan would see the equipment supplied by the province, but the funding and management of the program by the business community and municipality. So that'd be interesting to keep an eye on. All right, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. Look, there were a lot of voters in the United States who uh, didn't want Joseph Biden to uh, win the election. And there were probably a lot of uh, Trump-friendly or Trump-supporting Canadians who maybe wanted a different outcome. So there's a difference between, you know, maybe being disappointed in the election result or disappointed uh, in what happened today uh, and those who believe that it was never going to happen. So there is in the United States. Well, there's various different movements, I think, to be concerned about. We saw a culmination of a lot of that, obviously, January 6th and what happened on Capitol Hill. But one of these movements in particular, it's referred to as QAnon. It's it's a conspiracy theory. It's a movement. It's it's almost like a cult in some respects. And so today was a bit of a, a reckoning, I think, for this movement, because the followers of QAnon were assured this was not going to happen. Joe Biden was not going to be the president. There was going to be a storm. There were going to be mass arrests. There was going to be all kinds of upheaval, military tribunals, executions, uh, justice for all of these uh, evil people. And that didn't happen. Now, some are moving the goalposts or or clinging to something happening. At some point, uh, you get a sense that a lot are maybe feeling they were duped. They bought into something that wasn't true. So, like I say, this is much more than just a conspiracy theory. And I, I think, that, you know, the, the way that this has consumed some people's lives and really affected you know, families and relationships, it, it is something to be concerned about. And we're not immune from it here either. There's certainly been a lot of Canadians who have uh, gone deep down this rabbit hole. Uh, joining us to talk a bit more about uh, the events of today, how they relate to this uh, conspiracy movement and where this all came from. Someone who's been uh, keeping a close eye on it. Uh, Justin Ling is a freelance journalist. He's also uh, author of a, a new book called Missing from the Village, a book about the case of uh, serial killer Bruce MacArthur and his victims. Justin, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me, Rob. 
So why was today such a pivotal day in in terms of this conspiracy theory and and what it purported to be true? Well, today was, in many ways, the do-or-die moment for QAnon. For some time now, the premise of QAnon, you know, this movement used to be about a lot of different things. It used to be about child trafficking, as I'm sure some of us would recall. It used to be about uh, the deep state and corruption in D.C. Well, over the last several months, it's become about one thing, and that's about keeping Donald Trump in power. It has become a movement obsessed with the idea that Donald Trump is a force of good and that he won the election in November handily. So, you know, as we've gotten to today, it's been a do-or-die mo- moment because QAnon has promised that Joe Biden will never be inaugurated as president. Of course, he just was. You know, okay. it shouldn't survive. It shouldn't surprise any of us that QAnon was wrong. And for a lot of people, that's been tough to square. They have devoted, in some cases, years of their life. In some cases, destroying personal relationships, you know, investing their, their personal time and money into a movement, what we know is a conspiracy theory, into a movement that has said that it will all work out, that there is a plan, that there's someone behind the scenes making sure that nothing bad will ever happen, that Donald Trump will resume office and govern for at least another four years, rooting out the deep state, fighting for you know, good and justice and that the evil Democrats will never assume power. Well, they were all wrong. It's interesting, because there, there, there's kind of a QAnon light, right? The idea that Donald Trump is, is righteous, or the idea that Democrats are terrible, or the idea that there are those who have been in government forever who are trying to undermine Donald Trump. There, there's a lot of that, I think, that maybe resonates with more almost mainstream kind of conservatives or Trump supporters, but but the hardcore QAnon believers, it goes well beyond that, doesn't it? Oh, God, yeah. So I think I would say that there's a spectrum of QAnon, right? I I, I think on one end, on on the the broader end, so QAnon is a movement of probably at least hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in the U.S. and abroad. I think it's most innocuous. And I think where the majority of the followers are is this general belief that government is corrupt and that there's bad people in office and that Donald Trump is, is fighting against that and that there are real, real bad folks who might be like Jeffrey Epstein and using their positions of power to hide their misdeeds and hide their, you know, in some cases, pedophilia. I mean, that, that, that's mm-hmm. really the core of what QAnon alleges. And I think people who kind of ascribe to that level just that sort of surface level of this conspiracy theory, I think today is a bummer for them. I think there's a possibility they'll sort of snap out of it and realize this has all been sort of a, a ruse. I think there's, there's a chance that they're going to stick with it and still you know, think that Joe Biden is protecting that class of, of corrupt officials. But I, I don't think there's a whole lot of harm in that. It's not good. But by, by no means is it sort of threatening to society. I think at the other end of that spectrum are the folks who have really gone all in on this. They have... In many cases, either um, you know, came into the movement with anti-Semitic, homophobic, racist, and xenophobic beliefs. In some cases, it picked them up when they joined QAnon. These are people who think that there is a huge conspiracy comprising of everyone in the media, everyone in politics, everybody who you know who voted for for Joe Biden or the Democrats. Um, in, in some cases, these are people who think that uh, Justin Trudeau is is you know a communist infiltrator, and that you know, these people really do believe that we have to go to war. There needs to be a war against 
this deep state. And those people, in some cases, have been dangerous. They have committed crimes. They have attempted acts of domestic terrorism. So there is a real, I think, wide chasm of, of, of beliefs you know, in, in the QAnon movement. And I think how they all reacted today is going to be a very interesting thing to keep watching going forward. But I do think that there is a possibility that some people radicalize even further and, and, and pose even more of a, of, a, of a substantial threat to the Biden administration, but also to, to governments in Canada and elsewhere. It's interesting. I mean, a lot of this has spilled over into Canada, and it's not just Canadians you know, tied into what's going on in the United States. I mean, I had someone email me today telling me that in, within 48 hours I was going to be arrested and I'm going to be part of this military tribunal and charged with crimes against humanity as, as a member of the media. I had someone call me, I remember it was a couple of months ago, a few months ago, saying that Justin Trudeau had already been arrested. He was he was part of this great storm, and uh, the Trudeau we're seeing on TV is is a body double. He's already in custody for plotting against uh, Donald Trump. And this person seemed very earnest, very serious. And so, on the one hand, you almost want to laugh at it or laugh it off. But on the other hand, it's you know how do people end up getting to that point where you don't just wake up one day and say, oh, I, I bet Justin Trudeau is is in custody. I bet that's a body double on TV. Yeah, some of these people, I think, you know, found their way into this movement because of the lockdown and the pandemic. You know, when you're spending all day, every day at home, in some cases alone or at the very least lonely or bored, and you find a community online who sort of supports you for who you are, but more than that, gives you a sense of purpose and meaning and explanation for all of the bad things that are happening around the world and gives you a mission and gives you sort of this received wisdom and purpose and provides this sort of magical realism to reality. It's really intoxicating. And I've seen people fall down this rabbit hole. I've seen people post about how before the pandemic or when the pandemic hit, they lost their jobs. They had nothing to do, yeah. nothing to fill their days, and how they founded this online community. And all of the sort of conspiracy-making and anti-Semitism and all that sort of stuff is sort of incidental. Really, I think this is about finding a clubhouse to hang out in. That being said, there's also a big chunk of this movement who were long before this, anti-Semitic and who believed that there's a global Zionist conspiracy and who do frequently use racial epithets and, and who are homophobic. You know, there are, there are a lot, there's a core of this movement that are very reactionary, far-right extremists. So it's a, it's a tough movement to parse out. And, and that's why you know, we, we often talk about this movement in such serious terms because it really does pose a threat of radicalizing people who weren't otherwise radicalized and basically sort of pushing them down a rabbit hole that may ultimately lead them to being kind of too far gone to be deprogrammed. So this is a very dangerous thing. And I know it's easy to laugh off and I know it's easy to sort of discount as being lunacy, but I can tell you this is a very big movement. Some polling data suggests we're talking about millions of people who at least are supportive or in some way ascribe to the QAnon movement. That is a really dangerous thing. And it's going to be very hard to wrest those people back into reality. And there's really no telling, you know, when we emerge from confinement and this pandemic's finally over, there's really no telling how they fit back into this. Maybe they finally realize that it was all sort of a ruse, or maybe they forget about it, but maybe they don't. 
I remember seeing one, someone that, that I, I know by social media had posted something that was really strange, and it seemed out of the blue. Uh, Tom Hanks had taken, uh, you know, this honorary Greek citizenship because he can avoid extradition if he's in Greece, and, and he's tied into some kind of, you know, pedophilia cabal. And it was just, like, wh where is this coming from? It was just really weird. Um, and, and then I started to realize that this is connected to all of this, and I do wonder if that idea of protecting children is kind of a gateway drug into all of this. Maybe people don't get caught up and, you know, the Zionists are controlling the world or the deep state or all of this stuff. But the idea that, you know, there's some sinister forces out there victimizing children and you got to help fight back against that, that can draw people in, I think, otherwise, who might not get into this kind of stuff. What, what do you make of that? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, if anything, I would suggest that that might be one of the single largest contributors to QAnon size is is this 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 message around protecting children, and it's a very good message. You know, I think core to this message, however, is the mistaken belief that child trafficking is exponentially larger than it actually is in real life. But you know, that aside, I think a lot of people who fall into this ambit. 100% think they're doing it in order to protect children and to go after predators. And there's something maybe even noble about that. Unfortunately, they later join into some of these other, like I said, anti-Semitic racist conspiracy theories or, or you know, messaging. Um, but, you know, there's also something interesting to be said about the way in which QAnon sort of um, grows and fosters theories and beliefs that later become mainstream. You know, I, I think it's very easy to get focused on sort of some of the lunacy and the, and, the, and the kooky stuff. But we have to remember that a lot of the quote-unquote research that QAnon did found its way into the legal briefs of the Trump campaign. Trump himself was parroting QAnon you know, philosophy and doctrine and messaging. He was, in the final weeks of his presidency, retweeting very prominent QAnon influencers. He was retweeting Ron Watkins, the guy who helped run the QAnon message board. It was in Ron Watkins' tweet that Trump shared that he first suggested uh, asking Pence to uh, basically not accept the results of the election, which Trump later did. You know, we have to keep in mind that in, in many ways, yes, this is some of the stuff is out to lunch and shouldn't be taken seriously. But in many respects, what QAnon is putting out into the world is forming a large part of what the mainstream Republican Party or Trump campaign or conservative movement is sort of wrapping themselves in. And I don't think that stops today. I think we're going to see that continue, especially if you see Donald Trump stay in the political realm in some way, shape, or form. And I also think there's a real possibility that that sort of uh, myth-making becomes central to other far-right movements. You've already seen Maxime Bernier adopt mm -hmm. parts of this philosophy for his you know, reactionary conservative movement. You've seen the same thing happen in Europe and elsewhere, in Australia, a close associate of the prime minister, the QAnon believer. These people have found a very effective pathway to people in power you know, with their dogged pursuit of conspiracies that sort of conform to that worldview. We'll see where it all goes from here. Justin, thanks so much for making some time for us today. I appreciate this. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. That's uh, freelance journalist uh, Justin Ling. Uh, has written a lot about the QAnon movement uh, and its evolution. Where it goes after today, I guess it remains to be seen. Also, a plug for Justin's uh, new book, uh, Missing from the Village, about the, uh, the serial killer Bruce Arthur and his victims in Toronto.
Hey, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. So I wanted to, to talk about this uh, really interesting new research uh, published in a Royal Society journal. It's actually getting some international coverage uh, led by some researchers at the University of Lethbridge. And it, and it examines primate behavior. Specifically, there's a, a group of monkeys that live uh, around, in and around an old temple in uh, Bali, Indonesia, uh, that have developed a habit of, of stealing from humans. Maybe not unusual in and of itself, but what is remarkable is the bartering that then takes place. Essentially, these these monkeys are ransoming the the stuff they've stolen in order to get food. It is somewhat devious behavior, I suppose, but it it does almost seem economically rational at some level. The monkeys seem to understand the value of these objects and, in fact, recognize that some objects are more valuable than others in terms of how much food they can get in return. Uh, joining us to talk more about this uh, fascinating research is the uh, lead author, John uh, Jean-Baptiste Leca, is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Lethbridge. Uh, Professor, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Uh, talk a bit about how you, you got involved in this. Uh, is is studying uh, primate behavior a, a part of your field of research? Yes, I'm a primatologist and more specifically a cultural antro- um, primatologist. I'm interested in social learning and culture in in non-human animals, mainly non-human primates. So this is research, I, I believe these uh, these particular monkeys were studied uh, back in 2015, 2016. Is that correct? That is correct. The, the behaviors you just described um, has probably started some, probably some 40 years ago. But um, quantitative research on these behaviors started only about five years ago. That's correct. Yes. Yeah, and it's it is fascinating. I think in a number of levels, which is maybe why it's it's getting a lot of coverage internationally. Uh, so, how how did you first become aware uh, of of this group in particular and the kind of behavior that was being exhibited? It was um, not completely a random visit at this specific site, but I was doing research in another field site in another place in Bali, and I visited this uh, temple because I knew there were monkeys uh, ranging around around the temple, and I was interested in in examining whether they were performing another kind of behaviors that I was studying in another place. And then I witnessed um, the first um, robbing and bartering events. And then a couple of years after, my wife and I came back to this field site and we started to video record the behaviors. And then I hired um, a postdoctoral researcher and other students. And, and that's how the data collection really started. Yeah, and I've seen some of the videos you posted. I mean, it's it, it, the people who who are, I guess, the targets of this robbery. It is a little um, disconcerting, I suppose, or you know, they're even a little bit freaked out. Have these these monkeys, and they're they're pretty brazen, aren't they? That they'll they'll run up and they'll grab what they can grab, uh, purses, hats, even cell phones, that sort of thing. That's correct. The, the monkeys are extremely swift, but they're not they're not aggressive. Um, as, as far as I know, there are no there are no cases of um, aggressions uh, from you know the monkeys to to the tourists. They are really really targeting these objects, and they do it really skillfully. So go about or talk about how about how you go about determining what it is they're doing here, because maybe the assumption would be they're just grabbing whatever they see, and they don't know until they've grabbed it what it is that they they have. But it does seem very deliberate. So how do you go about understanding this? 
Well, that's that's a good question. Um, first, we were interested in looking at age differences because there's probably a learning process, obviously, um, behind this behavior. So we compared individuals from different age classes. Okay, and so our our data showed that adult and subadult monkeys have learned these mm, skills, um, probably not only through personal experience but also by observing other monkeys. But the process takes several years. It takes several years to master these skills. The juveniles are not are not extremely good at this behavior in the sense that they they rub and they barter uh, more randomly. You could say. The, the adults, on the other hand, have learned to preferentially select objects that are more likely to be exchanged for food, like electronics and, and prescription glasses or sunglasses, over other objects that are, that are less valuable for humans and are typically not worth bartering, like empty camera bags or old hats, these kind of things. And we, yeah. we demonstrated that both through observations, but also field experiments. We, we gave adult monkeys um, a two-option choice situation, and they would specific, uh, preferentially pick up the, um, the higher-valued tokens. We, we call them tokens, right? Because it's almost like um, poker chips in a casino. <laughs> right. Th- these, are, <laughs> these are pieces of plastic and metal and glass that have no intrinsic value for the monkeys, but they acquire a value through the bartering interaction. Right, and they, they've been conditioned that way, that a, a cell phone might garner more food than, than a hat, say. Part of the, the learning process could be operant conditioning at the individual level, but they probably learn socially from each other as well by observing um, skilled, conspecifics members of, of their own groups. Uh, so the theft itself that we described, and, and they are very quick, and they seem good at it. So what mm-hmm. happens afterward then? They, they, they take the item... They, they obviously don't go too far away, right? Because there's this whole unspoken process that needs to unfold. So what, what tends to happen next? That's right. They, they don't run away, typically. They, they sit around and they wait for uh, an accustomed barterer. And, and the, the best barterers in the area are the local temple staff members. And so, and, and then, and then the, the bartering starts. And, and, you know, several minutes of bargaining between a monkey robber and a human barterer um, is is a time window that is actually not uh, unusual. And the longest exchange that uh, we video recorded was over 20 minutes. And and the monkey was was refusing a number of food offers after food offers until the monkey um, was eventually offered um, the the kind of food um, he was looking for. Because some monkeys would kind of go with quantity. They would accumulate a number of food rewards before returning the token. And other monkeys would actively reject food offers after food offers until they get um, probably the, the kind of food reward they had in mind. So it's, it's a negotiation. Yeah. Right. And it's interesting because I suppose we could make a case that the theft itself is, is unethical, but, you know, that they are prepared to, to return the object after the fact then, that that's very deliberate on their part. Yes, yes. It doesn't, it, it is not 
always that clean, right? There are there are cases where you know it's it's a whole circus over there, and sometimes the the tourists are extremely frantic and and they really want their sure, object yeah. back. So if 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 you start stressing out the monkeys, then eventually they they might run away. But in 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 the best cases, when when the monkey is in, you know, um, calm enough, and and the the human butler or the temple staff, you know, knows how to deal with the monkey, um, it it unfolds quite smoothly. So as you say, and a lot of this is learned behavior, and I think it does speak to the the social structures that exist uh, amongst these animals. But it it does show quite a, a thought process. There there is a lot of steps involved in in this. So what does it tell us about not just their level of intelligence, but their level of almost like problem solving? Well, yes, that's that's why I study non-human primates because I look at them as pretty good problem solvers. And well, you you could argue that. Um, taking valuable objects from humans and only returning them in exchange for food is just one example of of these um, strategies. But actually, the emergence of of such behaviors, in my opinion, is is more or less expected, and at least for three reasons. As as you said, um, these monkeys are cognitively sophisticated animals, so they are smart enough to learn the association between certain type of non-edible items and certain food rewards. We know that. Um, But they are also socially complex animals, and they have the basic cultural learning processes that allow them to learn a lot of beneficial information from each other in, in a social context. And third, they live nearby large populations of humans carrying around both non-edible and and valuable objects um, tokens, but also food. So, you know, once a monkey has learned to associate these two type of items, and again, on a daily basis, they live around humans, this practice is almost bound to spread within the population. And that's probably what happened. Yeah, and these are unique circumstances. A lot of primate populations, uh, I would suspect, have very little contact with humans. These are this is a situation where there there is constant contact with with humans. That's right. Technically, we we call these populations anthropogenically impacted, which means they are highly influenced by um, humans um, in in their daily landscape. You know, so yes, that's that's part of of human animal interaction. Well, as I say, it's uh, some fascinating findings. Uh, Professor Lega, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really do appreciate this. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Jean-Baptiste Lega, Associate Professor, the Department of Psychology at the University of Lethbridge, lead author on this study, as mentioned, published in a Royal Society journal, getting a lot of international attention. It's pretty fascinating behavior. And, you know, given the unique circumstances of where these monkeys live and the contact they have on a daily basis with other humans, it can lead to this. Right. And, and so it does. There's a level of sophistication, obviously, then in the cognitive process. Steal that item, hold that item until you are offered a, a sufficient um, reward. So, you know, internally, then they're, they're assigning a price, they're assigning a value to what it is they now possess. So if you want the phone back from the monkey that just stole it from you, you need to offer what they deem to be uh, a fair price for that phone. I mean, it's, it's your phone, I guess. You can try to argue the, the morals or the ethics of the situation, but that might not work as well. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. 
You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.